This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is hard to believe that it has been nearly a decade since the big 2008 financial crash. So what have we learned over the past decade? A lot has changed since then. I'm here with Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor from the Allen Small Financial Group with Hollis Wealth. And we're going to look at the current landscape and get the latest advice on investing for Zoomers, for the Zoomer demographic. And Alan will be taking your calls and answering your questions. So let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-740. 4740. And Alan, let's let's start with this. Uh, for a long time, I've been hearing uh, stock market pull back, but it's pulled hasn't pulled back really very much. much. <laughs> uh, and everybody's talking bubble froth. But in the meantime, even though interest rates have started to go up, they're still really low. Yeah. So when you look at uh, this current bull market run, I guess it is the longest in history, as you mentioned, coming out of 2008, 2009, the market hit, I guess, bottom in March. And we've really seen since 2009, March, the, the longest bull market rally. And so many people out there are talking about how what goes up must come down. And many investors I've spoken to over the past few years have said, well, they're starting to take some money off the table, perhaps even pull out of the market, waiting for that big correction or that you know, that recession to get back into this market. And so in essence, trying to time the market. And I've, I've never been one to, to, uh, to promote that idea to try and time the markets, but some have. And unfortunately, it hasn't really worked out because this market has continued to move higher uh, year after year. And uh, I think it can actually still move higher. You're looking at the actual market in the U.S., for example, itself, not really that high in terms of valuation. When you look at in terms of earnings multiples, we're looking at around historical averages right now. So some parts of the market may be overvalued, but many parts of the market are not. And actually, some are still relatively cheap. So I think for the investor listening today, I think there is still opportunity out there and individuals can move into some of these investments. And I think good make good returns going forward. Okay, so which which parts of the market would you say are not overpriced? Well, I think instead of looking at sector by sector, I think you want to delve into more individual security. So if you take the hottest sector that we've seen over the past few years, which has been technology as an example, there are many tech names that you would say are, I guess, highly priced, you know, an Amazon or maybe even a Microsoft or a Google or an Apple. But some of the names that I think that are, are fairly priced or maybe even cheaper might be some of the what we call the old tech names, maybe like an IBM or a Cisco. There are a lot of names in technology that I believe you could buy today that are actually perhaps even undervalued. So within each sector, you have different names trading at different valuations. And I think within all sectors, you'll find those diamonds in the rough that you could buy that hopefully will go up over time. 
Okay. Now, speaking of, of froth and all of that, um, let's talk about cannabis. Cannabis stocks, is, it's the, the latest, I don't know, bubble is the right word. Some of the valuations are, are pretty crazy. On the other hand, you have people who are expecting that there's going to be so much supply on the market that prices are going to be cheap. We've seen some of the very big um, alcohol players make deals with cannabis companies. And to a certain extent, it kind of reminds me of the the big tech bubble in the 90s that a lot of people got burned on. Yeah, exactly. And I, I make that, definitely I would say, I remember back in the late 90s, I was getting calls from investors and they had this .com or that .com that they wanted to put their money into and half of them I didn't even hear of. Uh, today, very similar, I received calls in the last few weeks, uh, this cannabis stock, that cannabis stock, some of the names I haven't even heard of. And so it's very similar in my opinion into the tech space in the late 90s. And back then, we saw a number of people make a lot of money. Unfortunately, we saw a lot of people lose a lot of money. And so I think it just depended on when you got into the space, which names you bought. Some of the names were winners. Some of them are still around till this day, like the, you know, the, the Cisco systems or the Amazons, et cetera, or the, or the Yahoos. Uh, I guess Yahoo is a, a shell of its former self, but it lasted quite a while. And but, then on the other hand, I remember the, like... Uh book for golf. Remember that one? Yeah, there were a lot of names that didn't survive. And a lot of names were swallowed up by bigger names. So I think that's going to happen as well in the cannabis space. It's happening. It's happening right now. Absolutely. And when you look at the big three here, which are Afria, Aurora Cannabis, or or Canopy Growth, Canopy Growth being the largest, although lately you've been hearing a lot of news about a name called, uh, a company called Tilray out of BC, and their crazy stock run. We saw that stock actually double in half a day, then lose all of its value and actually go negative for the day, only to end the day up 40% roughly. So just wild swings in some of these names. And I think if you're an investor out there that's looking to perhaps get into that space, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. And I think you have to go in understanding that you could lose 30% very quickly. You could make 30% very quickly. And it's, it's, uh, it really is a flip of a coin right now until this space starts to mature a little more. Most companies in this space don't even have or don't even make money yet. They have no earnings. They actually spend right now more than they're actually making. So very hard to evaluate a lot of these names. Okay. Um, before we go to a break, let's, let's get down to Zoomers, you know, who are depending on their income. Uh, <clears throat> Interest rates have started to go up, but what um, percentage of a portfolio would you recommend uh, to put in something, and I put this in quotes, safe? And I think that's a a very good question. I get that all a lot. And I think when you break it down into, I guess, low risk, medium risk, or high risk, I find many Zoomers or retirees, they kind of shy away from the high risk stuff, and and rightfully so. And most of the portfolios I, I create or I see are more into the medium or low risk. And depending on I guess the needs or goals of that individual, uh, you could definitely build a portfolio out of those two areas, low and medium risk. And so instead of looking at someone's age, and I know a lot of individual investment advisors, they'll look at someone's age and say, okay, well, the older you are, the more low risk you should have. So someone who is 70 should have maybe 70% in lower risk or bonds versus someone who's maybe 60. I don't really look at it that way. I look at it more as what is your end goal? 
Today, a lot of the low-risk investments, as many people will say, are not paying much. Still not less pay- than the rate of inflation. In many instances, absolutely. But yet, their bills and expenses continue to rise. So, if you're someone who's sitting there saying, "All of a sudden, I'm now making a lot more than I did back maybe 15 years ago on my fixed income products or my high-interest savings accounts," you know, what options do I have? And so, these are making the pe- a lot less. You mean making a lot less? But what options do they have to make more? And you're finding a lot of these individuals starting to move actually, unfortunately or fortunately, into the markets in some capacity. And so I've seen a lot of Zoomers, a lot of retirees move from their GICs and bonds into some of the more uh, uh, names that they're comfortable with actually in the market such as maybe a bank stock or utility or maybe even a telecom name. And so that seems to be what's going on right now. And so back to your original question, how much low risk or medium risk should a person have? I think it's really dependent on what that person needs to obtain. What are their goals? What are their objectives? You know, what do they need to keep up with their rising cost of living? And I think that will dictate the type of portfolio I build for them or they should have. Okay. Uh, We're going to take a break. I'm going to give the numbers out again. We're we're here with Alan Small. He is a senior investment advisor. He is happy to take your calls and your questions. We've been talking about 10th anniversary of the big crash, Uh, this bull market that some would say is very long in the tooth, but what do you do with your money? Obviously, you need it, but, uh, you know, if you put it in fixed income and safe things, uh, you you might not uh, even cover inflation. So the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be right back after a break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I'm here with investment advisor Alan Small. We're going to go right to the phones. We've got Simon in Toronto. Hello, Simon. Oh, hi, Libby. Thank you very much for taking my call. You're very Um, welcome. Okay. Now, I want to talk about a a very difficult issue that I know uh, Al was probably uh, wishing I had never called, but... One of the one of the things that uh, a lot of um, IAs uh, don't like to talk about, and that's fees, because uh, Libby, one of the problems uh, in, in 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 that industry, and I don't belong in that industry, is the fees are just chewing up and eating into hard work investors' money, and I'm talking strictly about NERs. NERs, you, you, no acronyms, please. Okay, well, well those are the management expense, uh, expense ratios, and Al knows much about those, as I learned as well, and also deferred sales charges, um, which a lot of uh, investment advisors are putting investors uh, into uh, these in types of investments. And um, What's happening is a lot of these fees are cho- are chopping in two and a half, two point eight, and sometimes, Libby, as I just recently learned, um, you can get the same fund at a much, much lower and reduced fee, which of course means more money in the portfolio of the investor and not of the mutual fund company and these conglomerate uh, companies that are out there. 
Okay, I'm going to let I'm going to let Alan respond to that. Alan? Yeah. Yeah. And Simon, you're you're correct. Obviously, when you buy a mutual fund, it is a product that there is a mutual fund manager, the guy or gal in charge of managing the product. There is a fee affiliated or associated with owning that managed product. And at the end of the day, the way I look at at mutual fund fees and as an advisor, I have some clients in mutual funds. I have clients in stocks and bonds. So I have a, a pretty good mix of investments. But the way I look at it is, as an investor myself, what am I taking home? What goes into my pocket? Because if I'm paying a 2.5% fee to this mutual fund manager, but at the end of the day, after his costs or after the mutual fund costs, I'm taking home 7 to 10% in my pocket, well, I think that's a trade-off I think many people would make. And so I try not to look at the fee itself or, or the cost for for service, really. I look at it as what is the end result, very similar to, to any other profession that charges a fee, whether you but, know. Oh, I'm you sure, know, just well, a minute. With all due, okay. with all due respects, um, if I was looking for an advisor and you gave me that kind of advice, I would walk out of your office because you know as well as I do that there, I, I said it earlier, you can buy the same fund. Well, no, it's not exactly that. Simon, thanks for your call. Uh, I was going to ask a question about that, and that is about those trailer fees. Mm-hmm. And there are issues because when you buy mutual fund, you can either pay the, the fee up front. That's correct. Or the trailer fees, and I'm not sure that a lot of people understand that if they sell the thing, they've got these trailer fees. I mean, I'm sure you would explain it. Well, basically yeah. what I think Simon was getting to also with this deferred sales charge, and actually the deferred sales charge actually might disappear. It might no longer yeah, be. Yeah, I think it's under review because regulators don't like that either. And um, I think for some people, you know, even if you give them a choice and you say you can pay now or pay later, they'll pay later. But um, those deferred sales charges are problematic, but they're lots of mutual funds with the fees up front. That's right. So you can buy a mutual fund in many different ways. And the DSC or deferred sales charge method was very popular, I think, a lot a long time ago, not as popular now. And that was, you don't pay the commission up front, but you have to hold that mutual fund or at least the money at that mutual fund company for a six to seven year period. So I think the investor liked that idea because they didn't have to pay anything up front. But then later on, when they wanted access to that money, they quickly realized, well, I now have to pay a fee to get out of that that product. So I think... There are a lot of, I guess there are, maybe some would argue some pros, but many, many cons to that type of product. And I think that's why government has proposed to get rid of the deferred sales charge or that method of buying mutual funds. So now I think what's going to happen going forward is people are going to be buying mutual funds, just like stocks, just like any other product, where you pay a commission up front. And I think that's the way the industry is moving and that's the way the industry is going. And and in fact, taking it one step further... The industry over the last, I would say, five to ten years has actually moved into more of a flat fee uh, or or fee-based type of an approach. So instead of actually paying any commissions on the products that you're buying, you instead play a flat fee for the year, an annual fee of a certain percentage. And then you could go ahead and buy whatever you want, and there is no cost at the time you make the purchase because you're paying this flat fee. And I think a lot of individual investors choose or like that route because you get to see exactly what you're buying. At the end of the year, you get this statement that shows all the costs involved and I, you know, full transparency. And I think investors like that method a lot better. Okay. Let's hear from Jim in Pickering. Hi, Jim. Hi. Good afternoon. 
Um, my question is about using corporate class funds as a strategy for an investor with um, a sizable portfolio and who is being clawed back solely because of the dividends they're receiving, right? So if you have corporate class, uh, the dividends uh, come out as gain, capital gain. And so is that still totally effective? Okay, I, before you answer the question, I, I need you to explain the question to our audience. So corporate class... You're talking about stocks with dividends, correct? Uh, no, actually, these are mutual funds. So okay. so in this case, there are some mutual funds that are considered corporate class. And what it allows you to do is move amongst these funds, or mutual funds, and you could buy and sell without that triggering any any taxes. And I believe that's what the, the, the caller is asking about. And so the answer to your question is, sure, it's an effective uh, method. A lot of individuals have gone the corporate class route because they don't trigger any taxes. And again, like you said, with a sizable portfolio in mutual funds, uh, that can definitely help. My, I guess, one of the thoughts that pop into my head is if someone does have a sizable portfolio, I've been inclined over the years, instead of choosing the mutual fund route, if it's if it's large enough, you may want to have your investment advisor consider building your own specifically tailored mutual fund out of individual securities. And that's the route I think I've gone over the years where I go out and buy individual securities rather than buying these baskets of, of mutual funds or managed product. Jim? Well, thank you very much for that. But actually, it is my, the portfolio is in stock. But it, once you have a certain amount of port, uh, dividends and with that gross up, you know, but it almost seems too good to be true that you could bypass all of that, not pay tax, and take it later. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised the IRA, they've closed up a lot. I'm surprised they haven't closed that. I hope they're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, as I said, I, 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 if you're, I think you were referring to the corporate class structure on mutual funds. Is that That's correct? correct? Yes. Right, right. And so, yeah, it's been around for, for quite some time, corporate class funds, and uh, it's been an effective way for individuals to invest for many years. Well, thank you very much. Okay, let's go to Bruce in Mississauga. Hello, Bruce. Hi, good afternoon. I've got two questions for you. The first question is, if I'm an actual Zoomer, and I guess that's somebody over 55 or maybe over 60, and uh, what if I want to protect my principal in an investment, what is a reasonable percentage of earnings should I expect to make if I want to have a safe investment? So a safe investment meaning no risk or, or very low risk? I would say a low to medium risk. Low to medium. Okay. So once you start moving up from low risk to, to medium risk, that kind of indicates to me that you're looking at possible equities or things that are invested in the market, either through managed product or individual stocks. So again, it really just depends on the goals of your, uh, uh, your investment objectives in essence. So if you're someone that's looking for different, uh, let's say a return of maybe in around 3%, I think that is what you should look at in today's market based on prevailing interest rates. I think you could obtain that on a, I would say, a corporate bond, a low-risk corporate bond, an A-rated type investment. And I think when you're looking at bonds, you have to talk about how long or, or the maturity. So I think you can get that in and around five years. So if you're going to invest in a corporate bond for five years, very similar to a five-year GIC, let's say, I think you can get somewhere in the vicinity of 3%. Once you need or want rates of return above that, then you're looking at things like perhaps balance funds, so a balance between bonds and stocks, uh, individual securities or equities, 
and the medium risk area, I always like to tell my clients, you're looking at 7 to 10% on average as a, as a, as an, you know, something that you should strive for as a rate of return. And then obviously, if you're thinking about high risk, uh, which you're not, but high risk would obviously be double digits to the upside and unfortunately double digits to the downside. But overall, I would say on a, on a conservative or a low risk invest uh, portfolio, I would say consider somewhere around 3% in today's market with today's interest rates. But obviously that changes over time as interest rates rise. Yeah, I, I don't think most people uh, would um, would accept three percent. That sounds quite low. It, it is, and and that's why a lot of people, as I said, I think with one of the callers earlier, a lot of people are being forced into the markets because anything above three percent, four percent, five percent. If you're looking at, let's take a bank stock, right? If you take a look at CIBC Bank, for example, you could earn about a four point three percent dividend with CIBC Bank, but again, you're going to be buying a stock. That stock can fluctuate, so that would be considered more medium risk. So if you have, let's say, your low risk investments making three, your medium investments making seven to 10, 50-50 split, you're obviously looking at a five to 6% rate of return on your portfolio. And my other question was? Uh, we, I, uh, we are uh, just about out of time, so um, hopefully Alan will be back soon. And uh, Bruce, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, 30 seconds. Uh, interesting show. What would you like to leave us with, Alan? Well, I think the overall I would say that this bull market uh, continues to run. I think that it can continue to move higher. I don't think investors should look at this market and say, well, because it's gone so high for so long that you know that's a signal that it's going to fall. I think there are a lot of positives out there. There are always storm clouds on the horizon. But right now, the North American economies in Canada and the U.S. are doing very well. And I think investors should expect this market to continue to grind higher. Okay. Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor with Alan Small Financial Group with Hollis Wealth. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.